That might have been too weedsy for the weeds. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We have Sarah Cliff in on a rare Friday appearance, part of our Ezra Klein book leave. Where we're uh, getting by. We're, we're doing shaking, what we have to do. We're shaking things up. We're shaking things up. This better be a good book. <laughs> we'll see. The book's never going to be written, right? Oh, stop it. The book will be written. We hope Ezra's having a nice book leave. We also I worked joined- on a different book with him eight years ago. <laughs> This book, this book is not going to happen. Also joined by by Dylan Matthews, uh, coming in from New York. Uh, he he can tell us about the other book from eight years ago someday. But, but today, today we want to talk about local TV news. Specifically, you may have seen if you if you are on the internet this really great video that Timothy Burke at Deadspin put together, and it is showing basically how this one franchise of local television stations is giving scripts, in this case a script about problems in the media, to all of its anchors to read. They're reading it uh, word for word. I think Um, we can actually play it. Yeah, let's just let you listen to a little of it because it's weird. Pretty creepy. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS 4 News produces. But we are concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible one side of news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common. And it goes on for quite a while. You should check it out. It's it's even creepier, frankly, with everybody's little faces there. And this just kind of like it showed people it's like something weird is going on in their local TV news that I think is not not anticipated. And Dylan, you you wrote about this. I mean, what what happened here? So basically, there's a company called Sinclair Broadcast Group that is based in sort of the the Baltimore suburbs that over the past two decades or so has grown to be one of, if not the largest owner of TV affiliates. And in the process, has a very conservative bent and uses its influence over local news channels to get conservative programming on their local news programs. And in this case, they've what they've started doing, though, is they make certain segments that feature Boris Epstein, right, as a political right. commentator. And, and so Boris Epstein, is- who's who's a Trump administration veteran, worked on the Trump campaign. Um, and yeah, all of his segments are, are defending the Trump administration. But like, let's start even further back, because I think like a lot of us first learned about Sinclair watching this Deadspin video. Walk us through a little bit about like, what is Sinclair? And it, they seem to be somewhat abnormal in their strategy of... Um, just buying up whichever affiliates they can get their hands on versus like a handful of ABCs or NBCs or whatever. Right. I want to go back even further since I think we might have some listeners who are cord cutters who like don't know what TV <laughs> affiliates are. No, gather. if you cut your cord, you can should, can watch on the air television. Get, gather around. Matt, Matt you're old. Can you, can 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 you tell bunny. us what an affiliate is? So the technology of television is invented, right? What? And in the 40s, 
And there's like a problem with because te- I think people actually don't think about this, right? But there's a basic problem with television, which is just if any old person throws up an antenna and is like, hey, I've got a TV station, then there's going to be tons and tons of interference and nobody is going to be able to watch television and it won't work, right? So for television to work, there has to be a regulatory and licensing regime saying exactly who is allowed to broadcast where and on what frequency. And that's, you know, it's a little bit like contrary to the American ethos, right? It's like you cannot just start a television station, right? It's it's against the law. So the FCC licenses you to start a TV station and they need some concept of how that is going to work. And their original idea is you will just get a specific broadcast license and it'll be like, I'm going to throw up my antenna and it's going to be here in Baltimore. It's going to be a, be a Baltimore station. So you have, you know, different stations going around, but that's not an efficient way to do television programming, right? A good way to do television programming is somebody makes a show someplace, and then if it's popular, it airs everywhere. And so you have the idea that there should be networks of television stations, and it's originally NBC and CBS, and so they produce a certain amount of content, and then they show it on different stations all around the country. So the idea being that no matter where you are, you can find yourself an NBC Wait, but why isn't it one big station? Is it because they want to do local programming or is there some other reason? Yeah, so they decided that the rule should be that a company cannot own – too many television stations, right? There's a cap on how many television stations you can own. So instead of it being that NBC gets licenses all across the country and broadcasts its shows everywhere, NBC organizes a network. It's This is why they're called TV networks, uh, even though on cable, your cable networks aren't actual networks. But the broadcast networks are networks of affiliated stations, right? So you will go around and you'll say, okay, I need to get a station with a license in Dallas to be my Dallas affiliate. Then you might need an affiliate you know, in Houston, an affiliate in New Orleans, and, and you go all around the country like that. All of the big networks have a couple of stations that are called owned and operated, right? So in New York, LA, most big cities, you have O&Os. But in most uh, other markets, the, the stations are affiliates of one network or another. And so a classic business model would be to go from owning one local TV station that was affiliated with NBC or CBS and then say, well, I'm going to buy some more NBC affiliates because I have some expertise in how to produce local programming and I'm also knowledgeable about like the NBC lineup and and who it works because you want your local programming to mesh with the demographics of your national audience. And so you would have little kind of chains of affiliates of one of the given networks. Then over time, ABC comes on. It becomes a third television network. Eventually, Fox becomes a fourth. And then enter Sinclair. Enter Sinclair. So Sinclair, what they did that was different, they they started as just sort of a normal affiliate that the founder had like a station or two in, in Baltimore, and his sons decided they wanted to expand it out. And as Matt was saying, most people building these chains you only want to deal with one national organization because it's like really stressful and and time consuming to to work out deals with these national companies. And Sinclair's innovation was they just wanted to grow really, really fast. And so they started buying up 
everything. If you look at the list, they own 193 stations. They're about to buy a bunch more as part of an acquisition deal. But they own NBC stations. They own ABC stations. They own uh, CW stations. They own Univision stations. Uh, they own like like everything you can imagine Sinclair owns. And this was just like not how things were done. It's like um, one example I heard was like it's like buying up the Olive Garden and then deciding you're also going to sell Wendy's there. That it's it's you're mixing and matching this programming. And initially it was not particularly political, but they started getting some regulatory scrutiny because one thing they wanted to do as a part of buying these up really fast is buy multiple ones in individual networks. And traditionally the FCC, which is an individual market, an individual market, excuse me. So like you're normally were not allowed before Sinclair to say like own two New York media market stations. So to have like a CBS and an NBC both owned by the same owner. Right. Because you wanted actual competitors. You you didn't want a sort of a Potemkin competition between jointly managed stations sort of fake competing against each other. It was it was sort of a quasi antitrust you you want vibrant competition in the media space. What the Sinclair boys, the the Smith brothers did is they got their mom to start a company and she bought up some second stations in a bunch of markets and then hired Sinclair to operate them. Um, so they effectively controlled multiple networks and in, in, multiple affiliates in these markets, but did not have ownership because uh, because their mom's company was was technically the owner. The FCC quickly figured out that this is what they were doing and fined them, but bizarrely sort of said they could keep doing it, that they had found a legal loophole and and there wasn't anything they could do to stop them. I know some people who think the FCC flubbed that one and could have done more, but it opened the door for Sinclair and a bunch of other companies to start doing this en masse and to start really trying to, to build up bigger and bigger conglomerates by buying multiple networks in individual markets. And, and part of what happened here is that there was a both a technological change and a philosophical change, right? Whereas once cable television starts to be a thing, right, I think it starts to seem to people, particularly people of a more deregulatory bent, that a lot of these licensing rules are obsolete, that you used to say, well, you can't own multiple affiliates in Miami because then there will be no competition. But now the whole idea of competition within broadcast television starts to look obsolete to certain kinds of people, I mean, particularly particularly on the Republican side, but, but more broadly, right? What used to be this like obvious monopoly problem that needed a heavy-handed regulatory solution starts to look like, well, we have a technological kind of workaround. And the whole question of like local television station affiliates, I think sort of like fades from from the public mind as, as a thing, right? Like people think about the national networks because they're a big deal. And they think about the cable channels and local Local network affiliates are – it's like kind of a joke and we know there's like local TV news, right? And that's where somebody tells you about the weather or you catch up on your local sports scores. But it's not an important question in, in national politics. But at the same time, this was um, some data that um, Alvin Chang pu- uh, put up on Vox a few days ago. Local news remains an incre- like a shockingly highly watched source of news. I was really, really surprised he um, put together this – chart from Pew Research Center that looks at 
viewership of cable versus local news. And this is looking at kind of who is watching each of these sources of news each night. And you have about 5 million cable news viewers compared to 20 million local news viewers, which just feels like we spend a lot of time talking about cable news, about the effects of Fox News and the polarization between, you know, different cable news channels. I was surprised to see in this Pew data that all of that is being dwarfed in a lot of ways by the amount of people who are watching the local news, which is not something I don't think we, you know, until this Sinclair video came out and the statement came out that we put nearly as much attention into because like usually local news is like random stories about bears and like just like weird happenings. And you see it like on the John Oliver show making fun of some odd thing that they did, but that it's actually a very big force in Americans media, media diet right now. And I think some of that's probably also driven by like the people who are reporting the news. Like I'm guessing neither of the three of us are regular viewers of our local newscast. Maybe like the demographic that is writing a lot about national politics is I think quite different from the demographic that is driving local news viewership. Yeah, let's take a break and then I want to talk more about that. Before I did podcasts at all, I was a blogger and and I used to blog with the crudest tools imaginable, actually hand coding HTML using old school uh, blogging software. It was a terrible nightmare. Now things do not have to be a nightmare. We have Squarespace. With Squarespace, anybody who is doing anything is able to have an amazing looking website really, really easy. You can showcase your work, you can publish content, you can sell products and services of any kind, you can promote your physical or online business, you can announce an upcoming event or special project, really anything at all. With Squarespace, it's not going to take a lot of time and money. You get this whole range of beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers. They have powerful e-commerce functionality so you can sell anything online. Then you can customize the look, feel, settings, products, and more with just a couple clicks. You wind up with a website that doesn't look like a cookie-cutter website. Anybody can do it if you know how to use a computer at all. There's built-in search engine optimization, free and secure hosting. There's nothing to patch and nothing to upgrade ever, and 24-7 award-winning customer support. They're always updating the software automatically. You don't need to mess around with that. Easily create a website all on your own with Squarespace. Here's what you need to know. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code WEEDS to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So a million years ago, I was an intern in Chuck Schumer's office, and I was working for his communications director, who is not really in politics anymore. But he at the time, he was obsessed with local news and, and with exactly this point that Sarah was making, that like people who do political communications professionally don't watch local news, people who cover politics at print outlets like don't watch local news, it gets no respect. But his view was always for that exact reason. This is the most important place for a politician to reach people because anybody, his view, and I think this is right, is that anybody who is bothering to tune in to like inside politics on CNN has a lot of opinions about politics and like probably just like has a firm conviction about abortion or taxes or whatever and is invested, but that local news is where you could reach people who don't care about politics that much and aren't that interested in it and like watching news shows that are mostly about local crime and sports and weather and stuff like that. And that if you could get Chuck Schumer 
on your local TV news broadcast talking about an issue that mattered to people, that was a way in his view to sort of actually change minds, reach people who might or might not vote, reach people who might vote Democratic or, or Republican, and it would be incredibly powerful. And I think that is something that is troubling, right? It's what makes the idea of inserting conservative political messages deliberately into local TV news broadcasts, I, I think should seem frightening to liberal people because it's not the same as like a Rush Limbaugh show where conservatives opt in to tune into this conservative political messaging. A lot of people, you might just be watching your favorite ABC shows. And then if you're in the habit of watching local news after primetime programming, you know, you tune in, you see like, who got killed? Were there any fires? Did anything cute happen with kittens? And like, then there's some message about politics. And that can be a very powerful means of communication. So I think I that's, also, yeah. Oh, so I, I would love to hear Dylan talk kind of like about, like, let's, let's loop back to Sinclair and like what we saw happening. Because I think there's some quite unusual things with sending things out to their affiliates that you didn't typically see from, from affiliate owners. So yeah, uh, Sinclair... One thing they do that's unusual is that normally affiliate owners don't do their own programming, largely because most of them don't own enough affiliates for that to make sense for them. Uh, but Sinclair owns a ton of affiliates, and it, it did begin to make sense for them to do their own reporting, their own uh, their own content creation to then send to their local affiliates. And so it began taking on uh, features more of a network than than a group of of affiliates, um, and. You started seeing this in the early 2000s that they sent a team of, of reporters to Iraq to find the good news that was being hidden by the mainstream media that just wanted to point out the raging civil war over there. And they put together a package around John Kerry's war service and activism, implying that he was sort of responsible for getting some detainees tortured uh, in Vietnam. They just sort of began seeing themselves as a, a group that could put together this this kind of national content. And they use this technique that they call must-runs, which is where they'll send segments, usually like a minute or two, uh, to local TV stations and and say that they, uh, they must air. And either that's a script that everyone at the local station must say, which is how you get the mashup video that we played at the beginning of the show – or it's a pre-recorded segment from from the national office. So Boris Epstein, the Trump administration veteran, who's their chief political analyst, uh, makes a bunch of must-runs. Uh, at one point, it was reported that he was doing uh, as many as nine a week that were must-runs that they were sending out. They're all about a minute long. All of them are universally pro-Trump. Before him, there's a guy named Mark Hyman who uh, who did similar segments for them for, for about 16, 17 years. And... That gives them a really incredible reach. And as Matt was saying, like, if you're watching Fox News, you know you're watching Fox News. I suppose there might be some people in the world who are not aware that Fox News is quite conservative. But, like, its brand is pretty well known at this point. Whereas local news, you not only aren't as likely to know if your station is owned by Sinclair and thus sort of airing this kind of stuff, but with the decimation of local newspapers and other sources of local news – Often local TV affiliates are the only way to get news about your area. Like I moved from D.C. to, to Newark, a much smaller city uh, last year, and I've found myself like reading the website of, of local TV stations much more regularly because there aren't the sort of local news coverage things that I come to expect from 
the Washington Post, Prince of Petworth, that kind of thing. And so often the only way to get that kind of information is reading um, or watching local TV stations. And I think that's true across the country that even if running a local newspaper isn't profitable, it's profitable to like be an NBC affiliate and, and air Will and Grace and The Voice and whatever. Well, this is and, a question I have, maybe like for for Matt about the economics of local news of television versus print. Because one of the things that surprised me again, like going back and seeing the dominance of local news over cable news, feels like the total opposite of what you see in like print or digital journalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like. What what you know about the structure of these two different parts of media that like why is local news doing local TV news doing better than local even online news? Well, I mean, there's, part of this is that there's a regulatory issue here, right? So to maintain a broadcast license, it's a little bit vague, but to maintain a broadcast license, your business is required to serve the public interest. Now, what exactly that means, like nobody knows. There was some litigation around this question like decades ago, but it has never been fully fleshed out. But there is a convention, right? You go to any city in America and you know that the ABC, NBC, and CBS affiliates are going to have local news at 6 and 11, and you know that the Fox affiliate is going to have local news at 10 p.m. Right? They all follow that pattern. There is no law at all in the United States that says that airing local newscasts at exactly that time is a regulatory requirement for maintaining your broadcast license. But there is a regulatory requirement that you serve the public interest. And one way that the conventional way for stations to say they're serving the public interest is these routinized local news broadcasts. And then one reason that it's viable to do that is that television advertising remains a, a really, really, really big deal, right? The audience for television is shrinking a little bit over time, but it remains uh, the lion's share of ad spending. There's no equivalent of like Google and Facebook way to, to reach the TV audience. So there's money in local news. There's a perception that you are required by a regulatory nature to produce local news. And then as Dylan was saying, almost every local TV station runs a news website, typically not as like a sophisticated digital first kind of operation, but as a spinoff of their TV station. And because it's TV news, it's it's not like when newspapers started publishing online and risked cannibalizing themselves. It's really they kind of use their journalism buffalo, right? Whatever stories they are covering, stuff that doesn't make it on the air, they put it on the website. And it is a valuable source of local news reporting. It's also an area in which the regulatory forbearance that Sinclair has gotten creates a real issue, right? Because if you say, look, there's going to be three or four or five different local TV stations in an area and they're going to be genuinely independent, that creates three or four or five separate newsrooms that are competing. If you let them merge, it creates incentives to hollow out that kind of reporting infrastructure and cut back and and kind of share on people. And significantly, the FCC last fall changed the rule. The rule used to be that you were allowed to pipe in 
news content from elsewhere, but you had to maintain a primary news production facility in the area that you were broadcasting in. And they rescinded that rule last fall. So now it will be possible to, you know, have an affiliate in whatever city, Cincinnati, and just not maintain a local news studio there at all. And to simply have your quote unquote local news broadcast be stuff that you you copied from elsewhere. No one has done that yet, at least in a significant way. Only some very, very small communities that, that have low population. But you could start to see a, a sort of hollowing away of one of the, the last sort of remaining bastions of local journalism separate from – you could also see local journalism replaced by Sinclair propaganda broadcasts. And I think there was another change last year uh, that, that Ajit Pai, the new chairman of the FCC under Trump, put forward that also has really serious implications for Sinclair – so there's a rule that conglomerates like Sinclair are not allowed to own affiliates that reach more than 39% of the viewing public. And that's a lot. Like that's, that's two out of five Americans is, is a pretty healthy share of, of the market to be able to reach. But they started doing this thing called a, a sort of UHF offset, that there are two ways uh, to do broadcast channels, you can use sort of UHF frequencies or, or VHF. And this is very high frequency and ultra high frequency. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I know I said UHF frequency and I know that will annoy some people and I don't care. <laughs> but the so under the new rule, people you reach via UHF, which is sort of more limited range, count for half. So you just sort of arbitrarily take the, the UHF broadcast affiliates you have and and cut their reach by half in doing this calculation. And if you don't do that, um, then after the latest merger that Sinclair is doing, they're going to reach about 72% of American uh, viewing households. That's clearly not allowed under the letter of the rule. But because they changed the rule so that UHF like doesn't count to the same degree, it's now completely allowed. It, it's um, worth saying- wait, wait, and what's the justification for like UHF counting as half? Um, I think Matt might know more about this than I do, but I think it's it's slightly more limited range. It used to be that people who had tuners, like not everyone had ones that could get UHF, but I think that was a problem in like the 70s. Okay, yeah. Th this is important because this is serious, I think, dirty pool on, on Ajit Pai's part, right? So back in the day, um, you had your VHF and you had your UHF, right? So VHF is channels 1 through 13 on a standard TV dial, and UHF is, is the higher channels. And VHF is technically superior broadcast format for reasons that I do not know the physics of. But like basically, if you were trying to reach a lot of people with your TV station, you would want a VHF transmission. But you can only have a few VHF transmitters in a given area precisely because their signal is so powerful, uh, you know, they crowd each other out. And there's all this extra UHF room. And so back in the day, UHF was the second-rate technology, right? Your transmissions would not go as far. Uh, the reception would often not be as good because it couldn't penetrate walls as well or, you know, deal with hilly terrain, stuff like that. And so oftentimes the network affiliates would be VHF stations, 
right? So like when NBC, ABC, CBS would, would be VHF and the UHF stations in an area would often be a little kooky. Uh, they would be the ones who would buy the independent programming, Xena Warrior Princess, that kind of thing uh, off the syndication market. There's this Weird Al Yankovic uh, movie from 1989. <laughs> Great called, movie. Called UHF. It's funny, but it, I mean, it's based on this completely obsolete technological paradigm. The premise of it is that like operating a UHF station would be this like really kind of like ratchet, absurd business <laughs> to be in, uh, totally unlike having a, a VHF station. But a critical old regulatory issue is that a cable franchise, right? So that's like your Comcast, your Verizon that is doing cable television in an area has to carry all of the local broadcast channels. So this drastically increased the range of UHF because it used to be that there could be a UHF transmitter somewhere in the vicinity of your house, but because you were at the outer margins of its range and you had thick walls or there were a lot of trees or you were on the wrong side of a hill, you couldn't in practice tune into it or the reception would be really bad. And some people, if you were like a TV fanatic, you might get a super powerful antenna that lets you tune in. But normal people, you just wouldn't watch a station like that. But then with cable, the UHF channels appear in the homes of everybody who was inside their licensed range, right? So my cable provider has to get me whatever UHF stations, even if there's like some big trees right next to my house. Yeah, exactly. Whatever works. And they all all tune in equally well. So it's no longer the kind of situation that you might have had where like channel five looks really sharp and nice, but channel 27 looks like garbage. Now everything looks equally good, right? So cable television has made possessing a UHF license more valuable than it used to be. And what Pi is doing is pretending that it's like 1977 and that like actually we were overvaluing UHF all this time because we weren't taking account for the fact that the reception is bad. So now we're going to downgrade it by half. But in the modern day, the biggest value of having a UHF license is that you get automatic carriage on the cable networks. And so if anything, it's like if – Pi's rule had been the old rule, we should change it to equalize them. As it happens, they were equal all along, so it was fine and there was no need to change anything, except instead he changed it basically as a loophole to let Sinclair reach a bigger broadcast range. And to be clear, I mean, as people with cable television know, like just having the network does not mean you are necessarily watching it. Like I get DirecTV now and basically only watch House Hunters. But it's it's still like in the mix. And and if we're going to have a rule limiting the range of people who can get one conglomerate's affiliates, like it should be enforced <laughs> rather than like allowing weird calculations that that change a 39 percent limit to a 72 percent limit. And then they're buying the Tribune companies TV stations. So they're going to get even bigger. Exactly. Yeah, the seventy-two percent is the figure once they've bought the Tribune stations, and they've they've had to sell off some Tribune stations like uh, WGN in, in Chicago um, to stay under even the the sort of tweaked, uh, not as severe limit that Ajit Pai put in. I mean, one thing I am curious to watch with you know this Deadspin video coming out, and I think a lot of people looking at this for the first time is. Whether there is some kind of backlash, because I think a lot of people like have thought about local news as local news and like 
whatever. It's just, you know, the place where you get those kind of stories and that there is not a political bias in the way we think of our cable news networks. Sinclair has not limited their ownership of um, stations to conservative areas. It's not like they're like, okay, we're going to serve like the Midwest or we're going to serve the South there, all across the East Coast, all across the West Coast. I don't know exactly how this would work, but I'm very curious to see if there is some kind of like backlash. At the same time, like Dylan, you've written about Sinclair, some pretty restrictive contracts. I think one of the things that came up, like as we saw all these anchors reading these scripts are some of these contracts they're in where it is very difficult for certain Sinclair employees to quit because they would have to pay back certain amounts of salaries, that it's not just as easy as walking away from the job, but many of them are under contract. And those contracts have some pretty stiff penalties from breaking the contract. So that makes it you know, difficult for individual journalists to leave the station and protest, although I think we've seen a handful of those happen. But I'm curious, as this gets on the radar of more people who are interested and invested in politics who haven't been watching local news politics as much, if that leads to some kind of pressure for different ownership. And if you kind of start seeing the polarization that we see in cable news, where you have local news ownership that's reflecting the polarization we see in voting, the polarization we see between different cable news channels, if you end up with a situation where there's now, you know, your conservative news outlet and your liberal news outlet, and you see kind of viewership splitting between those two, you know, options that people can choose between. Yeah. So I think one of the most interesting things about Sinclair, and this is also true of Fox News, is that they don't appear to be profit maximizing, or at least they don't appear to be viewership maximizing. So when you're studying the effects of news networks, there's always this tricky problem of, on the one hand, people are being influenced by the things they're watching. But on the other hand, people are choosing to watch things that they probably already agree with. And so you can't just say, well, the people who watch Fox News all vote Republican, therefore Fox News makes people Republican because presumably Republicans are watching it for a reason in the first place. Um, and a lot of previous research, um, there are a, a bunch of seminal papers about this by uh, Matt Genskow and, and Jesse Shapiro, found that sort of demand side effects of what of what the viewers want are for most newspapers and, and some other outlets dominant, that newspapers have a good sense of what their readers want and their editorials and sort of coverage choices tend to reflect the views of their readers and cater to them. And... Gregory Martin, who's a political scientist and economist at, at MRE, uh, in conjunction with some co-authors, um, Josh McCrane most recently, um, Ali Yurokoglu, has been doing some interesting research suggesting that there, there are cases that are supply-based, where it really is that a choice is being made by the people who run the news outlet to make the news in a particular way, even if that's not the best way to serve their audience. So... The first paper, he and uh, Yuru Koglu studied the rollout of, of Fox News and found that the slant is not the one that, you, if you model it, you would expect to maximize viewership. Like CNN's like stated opinions, if you do sort of text analysis of, of sort of the partisan buzzwords they use, is sort of close to, to the median of the viewership they're trying to maximize. Right. And, and Fox is, is not. 
But they did find that if you want, if you were a conservative and you want to persuade people of conservatism, then you have to balance like getting more viewers versus being more stridently conservative so that you can persuade those viewers. And that they're sort of maximizing for persuasion um, was what they found in that. And, and they were able to, to go on a sort of local level and try to measure the effects on presidential elections and found like really, really big effects to like – six point swings in some elections. So because because Weeds fans love methodology, right? So the way the, the way this this works, to be clear, is that Fox News now is like this really big, well established presence in cable. But when you start up a cable channel, you like can't get on all the cable right. systems. So you're able to compare areas that are similar but differ in the question of whether or not Fox exists there. And they calculate like, a, I think this is an important point because I, I think that, like, people who do politics are, like, a little bit head in the sand about this and, like, refuse to acknowledge that these things that people do to try to persuade people actually work. And they find a substantial impact on voting behavior of Fox News entering your market. Yeah. And – it's one of the few, few papers in recent years that like genuinely changed my mind. Like my model of how news worked was entirely the, the Genskow Shapiro model of people read the news they want to read and it doesn't have that significant of an effect. And the effect size that they found in that was just massive, massive. Like John Kerry would have won like if, if Fox News hadn't been in the market massive. And – Martin and and Josh McCrane at, at Emory have a new paper out about Sinclair that uses rough, roughly the same methodology that in 2017, Sinclair bought a group of new affiliates. The new affiliates all got subjected to the sort of news controls and, and content that Sinclair forces on all their affiliates. And so by studying that rollout and comparing areas sort of before and after Sinclair buys and, and seeing it happen gradually, you can do the same kind of analysis. Because this was in 2017 and there haven't been national elections since then, they weren't able to do the estimate of, of how people's voting actually changed. But they were able to, to measure how the slant of the channels changed. And they found they got sizably more conservative. That there's, there's since Weeds fans love methodology, the way they do this is so there are these uh, ideology scores for people in Congress based on their voting record that tell you how liberal or conservative they are. And so researchers have figured out that if you take those and then you combine them with all the speeches that members of Congress give, you can tie like ideologies to specific words and text patterns. And then you can use that to analyze other text and see how conservative or liberal it is. Okay, we better take a take a second break and try to delve into, you know, what the implications of this are. We're sponsored this week by Everlane, which is a company that thinks, you know, you shouldn't be spending $50 for a t-shirt that only costs $7 to make. With Everlane, you never need to overpay for quality clothes. They make what they call premium essentials. They use the finest materials, and they don't have the traditional markups. They tell you their real costs, so you know you're never overpaying. They sell directly to you, so their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers because they look better, they cost less, and they last longer. They've got just, like, their basics, right? They've got a cotton crew t-shirt. It's exactly it should be simple, stylish, made from quality materials. 100% human tea. Uh, men's Japanese Oxford's really great. Slim fit jean. I really like their twill weekender bag. I've got one. My wife's got one. We've gotten them as gifts for like tons and tons of people. This is like a really stylish, durable, uh, high quality weekend. 
and bag, you know, pack what you need, you can put it in the overhead bin and in a plane, you're gonna look good, it's really great stuff. And so their timeless essentials are exactly what you're looking for. There's no frills, just quality. And right now you get free shipping on your first order when you go to everlane.com slash weeds. That's everlane.com slash weeds, everlane.com slash weeds. Pulling out of this a, a little bit. Right? <laughs> I do love our methodology. What we know from Fox is that putting conservative news programming into a market has a meaningful impact on voting behavior. And I think the right way to think about that is probably not so much that without Fox News, Democrats would have won every election, as it is that right. without Fox News, because Republicans wouldn't want to lose every election, they would have adopted like more moderate positions or, you know, they, they would have done something to win, right? But that they are able to stick to the course that they are on and win anyway with this boost. And we see that Sinclair, we don't yet know the effect of Sinclair, but that they are taking a similar um, slant in their news programming to what we saw with Fox. And that we see that you do lose some viewership by doing this. Right. Yeah. These affiliates lose viewers when Sinclair buys them, which I think is one of the most striking findings. And that's, again, it's a huge tell here, right? Because it's a totally reasonable thing to do, right? If what you care about is persuading people of conservative politics, then taking a totally neutral local news station, injecting conservative propaganda and losing 3% of your audience is like, that's a totally reasonable deal. Because like 97% of your audience is still a lot of people. And now they get your conservative propaganda. If you're like a normal business person, it's it's not such a great deal. And the fact that they are also getting regulatory favors in order to make this possible strikes me as really, really disturbing. That like Fox News, I don't approve of in any way, um, but it's like an above board business enterprise. Well, I should say, apart from the massive sexual harassment, <laughs> it's an above-board business enterprise. It doesn't seem to have any special favors from the FCC right now. Right. But Sinclair has gone through multiple rounds of getting regulatory forbearance in order to grow bigger and then becoming not just ideologically conservative, but like part of the point of these Epstein drop-ins, this fake news monologue, is like specific like Trump propaganda you know, like they are doing favors for the Trump administration and then the Trump administration is doing favors for them in a really direct way that I think has gotten much relatively little coverage relative to like Trump tweets mean things about Amazon. But it's like precisely because Trump is not constantly tweeting what the FCC really ought to do is change its regulatory process to encourage companies to do pro-Trump propaganda and then get favors and swallow up the others. Like, that's where it's disturbing. You know, it's like there's almost too much attention paid, I think, to like the Trump drama and like not enough attention paid to what they are actually doing. And the FCC is actually doing things and has been for a while to help promote the, the growth of this company. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes to like a larger theme of the Trump administration is that there's a ton you can accomplish through the regulatory state that, you know, does not I think we focus a lot on Congress and the things that don't move there. But there is a lot you can do just from the executive branch. And and a lot of it happens in ways that are not very, you know, newsy, that are not going to get a lot of coverage. There 
each day, you know, a new version of the Federal Register comes out. And this is a document that is hundreds of pages of long pages long that lists all the new regulations that are going into effect that have really, you know, significant effects for people's lives. You know, Dara writes about the ones that come out on immigration. I read about the ones that come out on health care. And, and they matter. I mean, Dara recently got a leaked copy of some draft regulations suggesting that non-citizens would lose access to some public services that they've had for quite some time. That would be a really big deal for that particular population. And, and that all happens through the regulatory state. You know, as much as we hear the Trump administration talk about getting rid of red tape and cutting down regulations, they also actively use regulatory authority as a tool to make policy. And I think this isn't different from the Obama administration. They did a ton through regulation and exercised a lot of discretion regulation that was taken to court multiple times, you know, arguing that it was too activist in the way that they were regulating. But it's a big power that any presidency has and one that is significantly harder to check. You know, I presume like most regulatory issues, if you have a problem with it, it's going to have to go through a legal system. It's going to take a number of years to challenge it. And it's a powerful tool. And I feel like that's what you're seeing here with Sinclair, which, you know, until they created this script, I think was really flying very under the radar and like doing all these things. I think if this script hadn't come up, you know, I, I would not see us doing a whole Weeds episode devoted to FCC regulation of local television. I also, I think it speaks to sort of the banal conservatism of the Trump administration. That There's sort of been this, this like meta debate over how we should see this administration. And there are sort of continuity theorists and break theorists. And the break theorists and uh, my friend Brendan Nihon, who's a, a great political scientist at, at Dartmouth, is one of these people say like there is a sharp break between what the Republican Party is now under this ethno-nationalist president and what they were before. And this is starkly different and we cannot like understand this as the natural conclusion of everything that came before. And then sort of the continuity theorists, which I count myself as, say like, no, there were like major currents in American conservative thought and and uh, in the movement and Republican administrations that brought us to this point. And I think Sinclair and Ajapai's relationship to it are examples of continuity theory in action. I I don't think that another Republican president would have done particularly differently. I think they are generally interested in this kind of deregulation. Sinclair actually wasn't originally a Trump supporter. They, they as a company, invested really heavily in the Ben Carson campaign in 2015. He's from Baltimore uh, or lived in Baltimore. They had like close ties through a number of dimensions. They signed on to Trump the same way that most conservatives signed on to Trump and most sort of institutions of the conservative movement. And there's just a lot of, of low-level regulatory stuff happening that is the same as it, as it ever would have been in a conservative administration. And I don't think it's distinctive to the kind of, of concerns we have about Trump specifically. And I would also say that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly how to put this, but that a lot of discussion on this topic, right, of, of the break and the continuity focuses on a sort of handful of kind of like never Trump intellectual types who are seen by some as, you know, influential thinkers or leaders in this kind of movement. And, and one thing that the Sinclair issue reminds you of is that who has influence 
in the realm of conservative ideas specifically may not be who you think, right? If the executives of this company had Bill Kristol's opinion of Donald Trump, things might look very different. Uh, but sure. but evidently, like they don't, right? Just as Rupert Murdoch and the Fox News executives don't share that view. And they, you know, have like sidelined George Will and Bill Kristol and other commentators who don't share their their sort of pro-Trump opinions. And that means not just that they matter more now, but that probably when we were thinking about conservative politics 5, 10, 15 years ago, we should have been paying less attention to the people writing the articles and possibly appearing on channels and more attention to the people who own and operate the channels because it's ultimately they decide what is the content of conservative programming. They are less accessible than sort of professional political pundits, but they can just make the pundits go away, right? And the whole power by which this operates, it seems to me, is why can Fox News sway views? And it's because a lot of people have a baseline cultural conservative worldview, and so they find the basic tenor of Fox's programming congenial. But then you can link up to that congeniality specific policy points, right? Like the idea that John Kerry is a flip-flopper or the idea that Hillary Clinton perpetrated a massive illegal email scandal or the idea that Donald Trump's corporate tax cuts are going to lead to higher wages. Like none of those are intrinsic elements of being a sort of older white person who has some concerns about cultural change in America. But by linking up, those basic identity points with like specific partisan initiatives, you can align people much, much more clearly with a specific political party. And, and the fact that the people who matter are determined to do that is, is really significant. All right. Cool. I think that's the weeds. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks, Dylan, for joining us. Thanks, Sarah, for uh, coming on a Friday show. It's going to be back every other Friday uh, yeah. for the duration. It's going to be, be amazing. It'll be great. Yeah. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and we will see you on Tuesday.